This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Dying for an iPhone, Apple, Foxconn, and the Lives of China's Workers by Jenny Chan, Poon Gai, and Mark Selden. Suicides, Excessive Overtime, and hostility and violence on the factory floor in China. Drawing on vivid testimonies from rural migrant workers, student interns, managers, and trade union staff, Dying for an iPhone is a devastating expose of two of the world's most powerful companies, Foxconn and Apple. As the leading manufacturer of iPhones, iPads, and Kindles, and employing one million workers in China alone, Taiwanese invested Foxconn's drive to dominate global electronics manufacturing has aligned perfectly with China's goal of becoming the world leader in technology. This book reveals the human cost of that ambition and what our demands for the newest and best technology mean for workers. Dying for an iPhone, Apple, Foxconn, and the Lives of China's Workers by Jenny Chan, Pungai, and Mark Selden. Out now from Haymarket Books. Plus, I interviewed Jenny Chan for The Dig last year on Chinese political economy and the state of the working class and all of that, and I will link to that interview in the show notes. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Last week, I did a live video interview with left-wing economist and politician Yanis Varoufakis. We discuss the corona economic crisis in general and the significance of the mutualization of European debt in particular, and other things too. Anyhow, as you know, Giannis is always both sharp and extremely entertaining, and I'll make this intro very short because I'm heading out of town to visit my parents for the first time since this all began after self-administering a deeply uncomfortable COVID test at the Rhode Island Convention Center, sneezing and crying as a woman wearing a face shield observed me through my closed car window. Anyhow, test negative, off to see my parents. But really quick, this week, I am going to take another break from asking you to support this podcast at patreon.com. Instead, I ask you to take a quick minute to share your favorite episode of The Dig on social media, or better yet, share it with some real-life friends by way of a text message or email or something more personal like that. You can peruse every single episode of The Dig by subject and by guest at thedigradio.com. We have about 269 episodes in total, and they are about, as you know, everything with tons of brilliant people. By my calculation, if every listener recruited one additional new listener, we would have twice as many listeners. And that, dear listeners, would be incredible. So please... As a personal favor to me, go to thedigradio.com, find a favorite episode, 
and share it with a friend or friends. I would appreciate that immensely. Okay, here we go. Yanis Varoufakis is an economist who served as Greek finance minister under the Syriza government. He currently leads the Mera 25 parliamentary bloc in the Hellenic parliament. And a big thank you to the Landon Foundation and to Haymarket Books for putting this interview and event together. Hello, everyone, and welcome, and thanks, everybody, for joining us. My name is Daniel Denver. I'm the host of The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine, and I'm really honored to be hosting this conversation today with Yanis Varoufakis. It's, a, it's an honor to be here. I wish I was uh, in Santa Fe as it was originally planned, but then again, we make do with technology and uh, maybe reach a wider audience. Let me begin with something that happened two days ago, because I think history is going to mark this event as quite extraordinary. Two days ago, something that has never happened before in the history of capitalism occurred. It happened on both sides of the Atlantic, and I'm sure that it happened in many countries in Asia as well, but I haven't looked at the data yet. Uh, Let's begin in Britain. The news came out quite horrific news, that the British economy had tanked. It suffered, according to official statistics, the worst slump in its history. More than 22% down, compared to last year, during the first seven months of 2020. Remarkably, on the same day, and after this horrific announcement was made, guess what happened at the London money market? the London Stock Exchange, it rose magnificently by 2%, the so-called FTSE 100 index, went up. On the same day, while most of you are in the United States, so you know what the climate, the political climate, the atmosphere in the States is these days, you know it better than I do. But from what I hear, um, you you live in a country that is beginning to look like a failed state, not just a struck economy. And yet, on that same day, Wall Street, the the S&P 500 index to be precise, hit an all-time historic record. When I noticed these two remarkable events, uh, I just couldn't contain myself. So I tweeted the following. I said something like, financialized capitalism has decoupled from from the capitalist economy. Financialized capitalism has decoupled from the capitalist economy, skyrocketing out of Earth's orbit and leaving behind it broken lives and dreams. And then I added, just as an explanatory comment, that as the United Kingdom sinks into the worst recession ever and the United States edges towards failed state status, the FTSE 100 goes up by 2% and the S&P 500 breaks an all-time record. Now... This phenomenon has been culminating, so to speak, percolating since 2008, but never has been seen um, in such stark colors and uh, shapes and shades. You see, think about it. Before 2008, money markets also behaved 
in a manner that defied humanism. Uh, do you remember, those of you who are old enough to remember, the pre-financial collapse of 2008 period, when news of mass firings of, of workers by General Motors, by General Electric, and so on, would routinely be followed by sharp rises in the share price of these companies, of the companies that were so-called letting workers go, as if they were concerned with their liberation from the shackles of employment. But at least back then, before 2008, there was a weird, inhumane, but nevertheless a logic, a capitalist logic, to the correlation between firings of workers, increases in unemployment in effect, and rises in share prices. The logic was this, that once speculators predicted a reduction in the company's wage bill, expenses on wages, they immediately assumed or they believed that it was a reasonable assumption that others would assume that this loss of personnel would lead to a rise in profits. Fewer wage costs, more left over for shareholders, at least in the short run. The mere belief that there were enough speculators out there thinking that there were enough speculators out there who would uh, form the expectation that enough financial power would enter the stock exchange to buy shares of companies that fired workers, that was enough to explain the phenomenon. An awful phenomenon, but one at least that did not defy logic, even capitalist logic. Compare and contrast to what's happening today. We're in the midst of this pandemic. Not one person in their right mind imagines that there are speculators out there who believe that there are enough speculators out there who believe that company profits in the United Kingdom or in the United States will rise anytime soon, that there will be enough left over for dividends, for shareholders. And yet, even though there is no such delusion, and no one believes that somebody else believes that, yet they buy shares of companies in the doldrums of the pandemic, you know, as if they are hotcakes, with enthusiasm. Let me make this absolutely clear. It is spectacularly wrong to try to find any correlation, any logic that connects what is going on in the real world of wages, of profits, of output, of sales, and in the world of the money markets. So boys and girls, friends, members of the audience, there's no point in trying to find a link between what's going on in the real world and what is going on in the money markets. That is the decoupling, which is unique. It has never happened before in the history of capitalism. It is not that speculators here that the United Kingdom economy uh, or the United States economy may have tanked, but ah, they think, let's buy shares because we need to buy into the dip. Things are going to get better. No. The situation is far, far worse. They don't give a damn about the economy. This is why I'm referring to the decoupling of money markets from real capitalism, for the economy in which capitalism, in terms of production and distribution of goods and services, emerges. These speculators, like you and me, 
can see that COVID-19 has put capitalism in suspended animation, that it is destroying lives and livelihoods, that it is damaging our economies in a way that may turn out to be almost permanent, or at least medium to long term, that it is causing a new tsunami of poverty, that it demonstrates in every country and every town the pre-existing deep class and race divides. As some of us who were privileged enough to keep social distance rules during the lockdown uh, know very well because we could see an army of people out there laboring for a pittance and at the risk of their lives to cater to our needs. No, what we are living through now is not your typical capitalist disregard for human needs, the standard tendency of the capitalist system to be motivated only by the needs of profit maximization, of, as we leftists used to say, or still say, of capital accumulation. No, capitalism is now in a new, strange, weird, degenerate phase. I call it socialism for the very, very few, courtesy of central banks and governments catering to a tiny oligarchy, and stringent austerity, stringent austerity, coupled with cruel competition in an environment of industrial and perhaps technologically advanced feudalism for almost everyone else. This week's events in Wall Street and the city of London mark the turning point, the historical moment that I, I'm convinced about that. Future historians will undoubtedly pick out to say it was in the summer of 2020 when financial capitalism finally broke with the world of real people, including capitalists, you know, old-fashioned capitalists, you know, capitalists who are antiquated enough to continue to try to profit from producing things, from producing goods and services. But let me take you right to the beginning. Let's begin at the beginning. How did it all begin? Let's go beyond capitalism, actually before capitalism, you know, during feudalism, feudal times, ah, when the lord of the land owned the land and more or less the people working on them. Back then, debt, owned own money or lending money, you know, appeared at the very end of the economic cycle, a mere reflection of the power to accumulate by the landed gentry who had the authority, the power, to siphon off or gather the surpluses. You see, you remember, under feudalism, production came first. So the peasants worked on the land, they planted, they harvested, that was production. This is the first thing that happened. Then you had distribution. How did it happen? How did distribution unfold? The sheriff, on behalf of the Lord, would come over and collect the share of the harvest that belonged to the Lord. And that depended on the relative power of uh, the feudal gentry over the peasants, the extent to which they feared that the peasants were going to revolt or not join their armies when they want to conquer more land in the surrounding areas or all the way to Palestine, whatever it was. So production was first, distribution came second. Debt came last, third. And it only emerged at the very last stage of the cycle when the Lord, who had accumulated all the surplus and would sell most of it in local markets, would lend his money to debtors, often to the king himself, back in England. Now, what is phenomenal about capitalism is that it reversed the order. 
Once land had been commodified after the enclosures, when the peasants were thrown off the land in England and in Wales and in Scotland with the enclosures, immediately land became commodified because suddenly every acre of land was associated in terms of price with the price of the wool that would grow on the back of sheep that replaced the peasants in, on that acre of land. And labor was commodified because all those um, expelled peasants would knock on people's doors in the nearby towns and villages and say, I will do anything for a loaf of bread. That's the first labor market, the first labor supply. So once labor and land had been commodified, debt was necessary for the first time in human history before production began. Now think about landless capitalists, landless peasants, that were given an opportunity by the, the Lord to um, lease a piece of land in order to manage the sheep on it and act as a tiny little dirt poor entrepreneur. These landless capitalists had to borrow in order to lease workers, land, and later machinery or tools. Who would they borrow from? The Lord. But debt came first, before they could hire workers and get equipment in order to work the land that they leased from the landlord after the enclosures. Before that, they had to borrow money. So debt comes first. Then production begins and distribution. So debt, effectively, was the fuel that gave capitalism its incredible oeuvre from the 18th century onwards. Now, that's the very beginning, we're talking about 18th century, what made capitalism genuinely successful and what allowed it to effectively to take over the four corners of the planet and to make it possible for Karl Marx to write the epic celebration, critical celebration, but celebration nevertheless, of globalizing capital accumulation, uh, was uh, the second industrial, not the second industrial revolution, which was based on electromagnetism and Robert Maxwell's wonderful equations that unified electricity and magneticism and that allowed for things like the telegraph, the telephone, electricity, power generation, the light bulb, and so on, to create the megaphone. Because when Edison created his conglomerate, that was the first time we had a networked firm a firm that produced everything from the power plant, generating the electricity, all the way to the light bulb. That's a network. These mega firms, to be financed, required mega banks that would provide them with the money. The little banks, the small fragmented banking systems of the 19th century, early 19th century, middle 19th century, were simply not enough. So the mega firm required a mega bank. And this new agglomeration, this new network, of mega firms and mega banks uh, is the capitalism that triumphed. It is not the capitalism of Adam Smith, who romantically refers to the baker, the butcher, and the brewer, but it is the capitalism of mega firms and mega banks. This kind of network that in the mid 1960s, John Kenneth Galbraith described brilliantly in a book that everybody should read, even today, called The New Industrial State. Uh, he referred to, Galbraith referred to this combination of mega firms and mega banks as the technostrast, which is effectively a centrally planned gigantic system of power that limits competition, featherbeds political campaigns, 
effectively buys politics out, controls money creation, and under the guise, these guys, of democracy on the one hand, when there is no democracy, there is just oligarchy with elections, and under the guise of the free market, there are no free markets, they're all monopolized by the techno structure, you have the magnificent success of capitalism um, in the 1920s. Now, the problem with megabanks is that uh, they have a remarkable capacity to conjure up money from thin air. Most of our audience today knows that uh, when a bank gives out a loan, it doesn't come out of the savings of anyone. It comes out of thin air. When the Bank of America or Citibank grants you a loan of $50,000, $100,000, this money doesn't exist. It's simply numbers that appear on a ledger, an electronic ledger, uh, on your ATM screen or your web banking application. Once you start spending that, this money, these numbers go from your row on that, what is a database, to the row of somebody else, as long as this money generation generates new profits, then the system is not a pyramid scheme. But the more successful it is at generating new value, the banking system, the commercial banking system, finds it even more profitable to generate even more paper money, to conjure up even more greater, larger, taller mountain ranges of privately minted money. At some point, this just collapses. This is 1929. After 1929, what did we have? Well, the, 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 the New Deal in the United States from 1933, which then morphed in 1944 with the Bretton Woods Conference into a global New Deal with political force used in order to keep bankers effectively neutered. Uh, a system of a global plan with the dollar at its center, run from Washington DC internationally, which collapsed in 1971. Why? Because the United States lost its surpluses, trade surpluses, and by that time it was impossible to maintain the hegemony of effectively a single currency international capital system. And then we go from the global plan era of the 1950s and 60s into uh, what I call the, gl the global minotaur era. You need to have re read my book in order to see why I'm calling it that, so just forget it for a moment. Uh, what we have is a remarkable period between the 1970s and 2008 when the United States, from being a surplus country, becomes a deficit country, steps on the accelerator, boosts its deficits <coughs> magnificently, and you have the United States economy operating like a huge vacuum cleaner that sucks into the territory of the United States both the net exports of China, and of course that before that of Germany, of Japan, and so on, and 70% of the profits of these foreign capitalists. On top of that tsunami of money coming into Wall Street, you had financialization. You give a few billion dollars to a banker to play with every day for five minutes, they find ways of making this grow for themselves. It's those paper tigers or houses of cards that collapsed in our generations 1929, which take place, took place in 2008. After 2008, capitalism changed drastically in their attempt to reflow the crashed financial system Central banks channeled rivers of cheap debt money to the financial sector. 
while fiscal austerity limited the public's demand for goods and services. Unable to profit from austerity hit consumers in the States, in Greece, and Germany, corporations and financiers were hooked up to the central banks to that constant drip feed of debt that central banks were producing on behalf of corporations that were becoming zombified. And then, in 2020, COVID-19 came along. COVID-19 found capitalism in this zombified state. With consumption and production hit at once, governments must now replace all incomes to a gargantuan extent. The way things are going, the zombification of banks and corporations that we've been experiencing since 2008 will engulf the rest of the capitalist economy. The necessary condition for avoiding this is a massive restructuring of public and private debts, which, of course, our oligarchy regimes are going to fight to the nail against. So the point I want to leave you with, and with which maybe we can start a conversation, is that post-capitalism is already happening. My difference with fellow leftists is that I do not believe that there is any guarantee that what comes after capitalism is necessarily going to be a good thing. It could prove very dystopic. Can we imagine conditions that may prove sufficient for post-capitalism to be good? Allow me to finish with a speculative and controversial statement. That will only happen. Markets can only begin to function in the public interest. If, on the one hand, we terminate share markets, terminate them, not regulate them, terminate share markets, and terminate, not regulate, terminate labor markets, while at the same time, we terminate commercial banking and having the Fed or the ECB or the Bank of England, central banks, granting everyone a digital account with a central bank. Wow. Thank you for that incredibly rapid fire trip from feudalism to our present dystopic moment. And I want to start with the present dystopic moment because and the current degenerate state of capitalism, which is somehow just far more degenerate than the last time we spoke a few years ago in New York, because in fact, we cannot even be together in person today in Santa Fe as planned because things have gotten so profoundly dystopic. So to, to start, and you, you referenced this tweet and I have the text of it here. You wrote, financial capitalism is decoupled from the capitalist economy, skyrocketing out of Earth's orbit, leaving behind it broken lives and dreams. As the UK sinks into the worst recession ever, and U.S. edges towards failed state status, the FTSE 100 goes up 2%, and the S&P 500 breaks all-time record. How does a materialist analysis account for this? Is this the inevitable trajectory of finance within capitalism, or does it have to do with the function of finance and the role of finance within this very particular political economic conjuncture? Oh, my analysis is 100% materialist, except that um, capitalism deals not in material goods anymore. It deals, always has dealt, in fictitious capital. That has been its power. Uh, that's why, you see, I, I made the point that when we shifted from feudalism to capitalism, debt was no longer a repercussion of social relations of production and distribution, but became a prerequisite. What really unleashed huge productive powers you know, from the steam engine-driven textile factories to today's Apple and Google, has been this reversal, that debt comes first. In another book that I wrote, um, addressing my daughter, it's called Talking to My Daughter About the Economy, 
I try to explain it as, as follows. It is as if the banker, operating on behalf of the capitalist, pushes his hand, I'm going to use his, not his or hers, his hand through the, a membrane which divides the present from the future, reaches, his hand reaches into the future, grabs value that has not been created yet, brings it into the present, and lends it to capitalists to invest into you know, technologies, machines, robots, and so on, to produce this value and return it to the future. And this has been incredibly progressive and created remarkable new wealth, as well as new forms of depravity. This has been the triumph of capitalism over the last 200 years. But the tragedy here is, and this is a, a bit like a Shakespearean tragedy or an ancient Greek Sophocles-like tragedy, that the more successful it is, the greater the incentive of the banker to keep reaching into the future for more value to bring to the present when the present at some point runs out of the capacity to convert it into value and therefore to repay the future. And that's when a crisis happens. And when the crisis happens, the state steps in and bails out the bankers. If it doesn't bail out the bankers as in 1929 at the President Hoover, the whole thing collapses uh, until something is done. In the only difference with 2008, between 1929 and 2008, is that in 2008 they didn't make the same mistake. They bailed out the bankers, which is not a good thing. They should have bailed out the banks, but not the bankers, but that's politics. The fact is that they bailed out the bankers. What's the difference between 2020 then and 2008 and, and 1929, if this is a more qualitatively unique decoupling? Why, if this is an inherent contradiction in capitalism between, between finance and the real economy, what's, what's happening now that, that you think is different? You see, I'm one of the few people who think that 2020 is not that significant. I think the significant dates uh, for capitalism were 1929 and 2008. In 2008, we had the bailing out of the banks, which effectively what it did was it zombified the banks. They, are neither, they were neither dead nor alive. They were drip-fed by public money. Okay? Mm -hmm. And what happened was that this zombification of the banks between 2008 and 2020 led to the zombification of the whole of corporate capitalism. And let me give you an example, because I like to speak in practical terms. Go back to 2009, April 2009. Barack Obama is in the White House. The first G20 meeting happens when the central bankers of the world gather together and they decide to act to save bankers around the world. And they did this magnificently. You know, the Fed, Bank of England, Bank of Japan, the Swiss National Bank, the Central Bank of Sweden, the European Central Bank, they all pumped money and gave it to the bankers, and they refloated them. At the same time, they practiced austerity on the many, including Barack Obama, because Obama's so-called um, stimulus program was not a stimulus program in the end. There were, you know, hundreds of billions, supposedly, but if you add the austerity of the states, the state budgets were, were shrinking, if you look at both federal governments, the federal government's budget and the state's government, you add up together, in the United States you had a small amount of austerity. In Europe you had a huge amount of austerity. So what does this mean? It means, imagine you're, a, you're, you're you know, a banker. You've received all these billions, uh, or trillions for that matter, from the central banks. And you, you, you know, the, the worst nightmare of a banker is to have money that you can't lend, right? not being able to lend the money that you have. This is the nightmare of a banker. So you look around, and you look, at, you look at the little people, and you say, I'm not giving them money because they are suffering austerity. They won't be able to repay me. The, so I'll give it to the corporations. 
to Apple, to Google, to Volkswagen, to General Electric, to Alstom, and so on. Now, the board of directors of these large corporations look at, out there to the little people, at the little people, and they think the same. You know, if we, what's the point of investing in new jobs and new production lines and new products when the little people out there won't be able to buy the stuff? So what do they do? They say, okay, they, when they get a telephone call from Deutsche Bank or from Citibank or from JP Morgan, and the banker says, I've got oodles of money for you. Do you want to, 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 to borrow it? You say, yeah, yeah, okay, give it to me. It's cheap money. It's free money. It was coming at zero interest rates. So why say no to it? And what do you do with it? You do not invest in good quality jobs, in green technologies, in hiring people. You take the money and you go to Wall Street and you buy back the shares of your own company. Because that way, the share price goes up. Your bonus as a member of the board of directors, CEO, whatever, of the company is linked to the share price. So you're doing really very well. Why invest? Now, that's what has been happening since between 2008 and 2020. So by 2020, by the time that stupid piece of RNA, not even DNA, hit humanity, <laughs> the zombified banking system had zombified the whole of the corporate world. In the United States, in Germany, in France, in Britain, all these large corporations survived and their share prices were really going up all this time, because of this drip feed connecting central banks to private banks, private banks to corporations, while everybody else was suffering austerity. So the bubble bursts with COVID-19, this huge bubble now, because in 2008, the bubble was confined within the financial sector. In 2020, the bubble had become gargantuan and had engulfed the whole of the corporate sector, even the oil industry. So COVID-19 comes like a, a pin that pricks this gigantic bubble. And the Fed, the ECB, you know, they have one instrument, the same that they started using since 2008, which is to print money and refloat the, the, you know, the bubbles that burst. Only this time, the bubbles are much greater than they were in 2008. So the difference between 2008 and 2020 is not a qualitative one, in my view. It is one of scale. Of course, you know, quantity leads to quality. As Hegel has taught those of us who, you know, hark back to that dialectical tradition. Um, and now we have a situation where the increase in the quantity of money that the Fed, the European Central Bank, and so on, have decided upon and have injected into corporates is just 10 times as large as in 2008. So this is why you have the S&P 500 reaching its all-time record. Because the people who play in the stock exchange in Wall Street, they don't give a damn anymore about what happens to the companies. They know that even if General Motors, you know, tanks, and nobody buys a single car, the General Motors board of directors will get a huge amount of money from J.P. Morgan, which will get a huge amount of money from the Fed. So they will go into the stock exchange and boost the share price of General Motors up independently of profits, independently of how many cars are sold. So this is the decoupling that I'm talking about. Now, for how long can this last? This is a political question. You see, bubbles burst. But how long does it take before they burst? John Maynard Keynes had a fantastic expression. He once said that the market can stay rational longer than I can stay solvent. So, you know, this bubble can continue for another five years, 10 years, 20 years, who knows? But it is the politics that matters. Because as this 
bubble is constantly being refloated. And the decoupling of financial markets from the real world continues. The inequality becomes just unbearable. You have people now in the United States, people in Britain, people in Greece, people in Germany, who simply, you know, they used to be two paychecks away from penury. Now they're well immersed in penury. While the good people in Wall Street, you know, they are thinking of what they're going to do with their huge profits. At some point, the politics will break. The pop something we need will give. And it is in my estimation that it will be the politics. Now, the politics can give in two ways. One is a massive boost of what I call the nationalist international, or the neo-fascist international, led by Donald Trump, uh, but also with Bolsonaro, Modi, um, the ultra-right in, uh, in Europe, or it will have to lead to a progressive movement, which does not exist yet. Some of us are trying to put it together. With, you, may have heard of, uh, you may have heard of the progressive international that um, some of us are trying to uh, turn into a real worldwide movement. Either something like that is going to create a genuine Green New Deal for the world, not simply in terms of financing the green transition and good quality jobs and a shift of wealth from the global north to the global south. All these things are essential. But I don't think they are any longer sufficient. We need to, you know, to become even more ambitious and talk about post-capitalism. I don't want to bury the, the lead of something pretty remarkable you said a few minutes ago, which is that you are one of the few people who doesn't believe 2020 matters. Is what you mean by that, that it doesn't matter the way that people think it does, that it matters more as an acute crisis that's greatest import is that it's exposed and manifest a more generalized crisis in waiting that pre-existed COVID-19? Is that, is that what you're saying? Yes. I think, look, it's, I'm not saying that 2020 does not matter. It, mat it matters hugely. But it is not a call, call uh, if you want, a discontinuity in the history of capitalism the way 2008 was. 2008 was a discontinuity in the history of capitalism, the same way, in the same way that 1929 was. In 2008, that discontinuity caused central banks and governments to adopt the policy of socialism for the few, the zombification of corporates and banks, and austerity for the many. And that bloated capitalism with unsustainable debt, zombified the corporates, created huge inequalities, and that's when 2020 came, which was a much greater crisis than 2008 in terms of quantity, because if you look at the, you know, the, the collapse in GDP, for instance, it's much greater in 2020 than it was in 2008. But it's a qu quantitative shock compared to 2008, which was a, a historic shift. So 2008 was smaller in magnitude, but more significant in terms of its historical transformation. It led to a gigantic battle, bubble, which burst magnificently now with 2020. So the the, the volume of the crisis now is much greater, but yeah. the reason why it is so great is because of what happened in 2008. So future historians, I think, are going to mark 2008 as the moment when capitalism began to effectively transform itself in a totally unsustainable system and manner, and 2020 was the, the final straw. That's really fascinating, and what's terrifying about that analysis, though, is that these sort of post 
2008-2020 moments might just keep coming and coming. What, what does the economic and political response that you've seen to, to COVID, both as a public health and economic crisis so far around the world, what does that tell you about how the, the various global elites might handle an era of more pandemics and mass disruption caused by climate change that we're, that we're already experiencing? Well, what I find very interesting, uh, since you're asking me to comment on the way they're handling it, but the politics. Yeah. The economics is straightforward. They, they are just using the rule book of 2009, turbocharging it through quantitative easing. They, they're not doing anything more than beyond that. Uh, of course, they, the furlough scheme and all those things are just proof that neoliberals never meant it when they were admonishing the state, when Ronald Reagan was saying that, you know, the most terrifying words in the English uh, language are, you know, I come from the state and I'm here to help you. He didn't really mean it. It was just a rhetorical <laughs> flourish, right? Um, the neoliberals always left the state more powerful than they found it, uh, except that the power of the state that they invested in was uh, power in favor of the oligarchy, not of the, the hoi polloi, right? That's, so the neoliberalism is a complete hypocrisy, in the same way that Marxists were hypocrites under the Soviet Union, which has nothing to do with uh, socialism. But what I find fascinating about men and women in authority is um, the way in which they adapted so quickly to a new situation, uh, a situation where the government is very clearly capable, powerful. You remember, up until COVID-19 came along, uh, there were the, the conventional wisdom. You know, governments are not that powerful. I remember, you remember Bill Clinton saying that he wants to come back as uh, the bond market. The era of big government is over. Yeah. So the, the, the myth of the radical center, which dominated both in Europe and the United States until Barack Obama, the myth that there's not so much the government can do. You know, now we live in a world which, uh, you know, is globalized. It's all under the spell of economic forces beyond our control. What we need to do is, you know, cajole them and uh, channel them and stroke them and be nice to them and, you know, be realistic and not try to, 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 to behave as if the state can do stuff. That went overnight. Suddenly, you know, the government steps in and says, okay, you can't go to a concert, you can't get out of your house, we're going to tell you how to breathe, when to breathe, where to breathe, right? I'm not criticizing the lockdown. What I'm saying is that suddenly the, the government comes and tells you what to do at every level of life. It says, okay, the same people who used to say that, you know, a tiny little increase in the budget for education or the healthcare would be catastrophic, will end America as we know it. Yeah, suddenly they say, okay, let's create 10 trillion. And they argue whether it should be 10 or 15. And um, they take over the labor market and they, and they pay people's wages in Britain. Uh, between 80 and 100% of wages have been paid off by the government. The Bank of England suddenly announces that, you know what, don't worry about debt. Um, we will buy the government debt. Primary market buying. Something that I had never said, you know, they were insisting was impossible. If this ever happens, then the banking system will collapse. Well, it happened. It didn't collapse. The banking system is doing really very well. There's a distinction between the U.S. and Europe here, right, where, like, the Fed is, is acting in, in the U.S., but a lot of the other branches of government really believe their own propaganda, and we are experiencing a total inability of, of Congress to pass, to extend very basic 
a very basic extension of unemployment benefits, um, thanks to Senate Republicans. You know, my, my fellow Americans, my <laughs> friends in America, I mean, right? I don't sound like an American president, but my friends in America live under this touching illusion that Europe is so much, much better than the United States. Folks have got bad news. It isn't. Because, yeah. uh, yes, I mean, the difference between state governments in the United States and our national nation-state governments in the Eurozone is that, yes, you have some real idiots running state governments in the United States believing their own rhetoric. In Europe, it's worse because we have nation-states that have absolutely no power. You know, I live in a, in a colony of the, of the European Central Bank. It doesn't matter who is the prime minister of Greece. They don't have access to monetary policy. They don't have access to fiscal policy. They don't even have access to, to health policy. You know, we have had, over, after 10 years of stringent austerity, we've lost 20, 25% of doctors in the last 10 years through immigration. In the last two years, 50% of our medical school graduates are leaving the country. Now, think about that. For a country like Greece, that puts all this money into educating doctors, who then immediately go to Canada, Germany, New Zealand, and they, you know, they, they serve the, the public health service or the private health service there. Imagine the, the, the waste of human capital by the Greek state, and there's nothing the Greek state can do to hire a few more doctors here. You know, as a party leader, I go from hospital to hospital, and they're totally depleted. They're, you know, the usual heroes and heroines doing remarkable work. Um, some of them haven't been home for three or four days and nights because there isn't enough staff. And the Greek government cannot hire anyone. The differences between the United States and Europe are not as great as the liberal imagination in the United States would have it. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Revolting Prostitutes, The Fight for Sex Workers' Rights by Juno Mack and Molly Smith. Do you have to think that prostitution is good to support sex worker rights? How do sex worker rights fit with feminist and anti-capitalist politics? Is criminalizing clients progressive? And can the police deliver justice? In Revolting Prostitutes, Sex workers Juno Mack and Molly Smith bring a fresh perspective to questions that have long been contentious. Speaking from a growing global sex workers' rights movement and situating their argument firmly within wider questions of migration, work, feminism, and resistance to white supremacy, they make clear that anyone committed to working towards justice and freedom should be in support of the sex workers' rights movement. Revolting Prostitutes, The Fight for Sex Workers' Rights, by Juno Mack and Molly Smith. Out now, in paperback, from Verso Books. The escapist liberal imagination here is, is vast. The recurrent pledges amongst uh, the affluent liberal elite to move to Canada if X, Y, or Z happens. But let, let's talk about, about Europe specifically the 750 billion euro post-pandemic EU recovery fund, which you've been writing a lot about recently. And Northern European governments hate it, which might lead one to conclude that it's a good thing. 
this crossing of, of what seemed to be such a, a red line around the mutualization of, of, of European debt seems significant and, and hopeful to a lot of people, but, but not to you. Even though, as you write, it is, quote, the first time EU leaders seem to have acknowledged the indispensability of a common debt as the glue of any monetary union. But you're deeply skeptical. Why, why don't you see this as a turning point towards a true fiscal union and, and instead see it as the next step towards the obliteration of the EU? Okay. Allow me to answer by recasting this agreement, EU agreement, in U.S. terms. Imagine you lived in the, in the United States in which there was no federal government, no federal treasury, but there was a Fed, which was not allowed to bail out Arizona or Missouri, right? Or the banks of Arizona, for that matter. Imagine further that, you know, in 2008, the great state of Nevada, which is more or less the same size as Ireland in terms of population, also a state based on uh, low corporate taxation, on a lot of construction, Nevada and Ireland, similar, not in weather, not in culture, but at least in these basic <laughs> financial and economic terms. Eh? Imagine if the great state of Nevada, when everything collapsed in 2008, when real estate went to the dogs, when banks went to the dogs, imagine if the, the governor of, of Nevada had to borrow in the international markets to bail out the banks of Nevada and to pay for the unemployment benefits of the construction workers in Las Vegas and wherever it is that they are building stuff. Okay, then immediately what would happen is, of course, uh, the state of Nevada would be bankrupt. And if then the governor of Nevada had to go to the, to, to the International Monetary Fund and get a loan from the IMF on conditions of austerity that slash wages, slash pensions in Nevada, then that would drive half of the Nevadans out of Nevada and you know, the state would be even more bankrupt. Okay, this is what happened between 2010 and 2020 in Europe, because you know what I described now is very much the way in which the Eurozone, the European Union's monetary area, common area, where the euro is the currency, uh, functions. Imagine that 10 years afterwards, or 12 years afterwards, you know, COVID-19 comes to this kind of the United States, and the great and the good leaders of the states get together and agree that it, you know, it's time that we had common debt, and that we transfer some money between ourselves. But imagine that instead of the 7, 8, 9% of GDP, which the federal government that we now have is uh, using as a fiscal stimulus, they agreed on a 0.7%. No? Not 7%, 0.7%. The first thing you would say is, guys, too little, too late. Secondly, even worse than that, even worse than that, imagine if the agreement was the following. The governors of the states would sit around a very large oval table and they would come to an agreement on raising a common debt. They claimed it's 750 billion, but when we looked at the numbers, it was 310, which is again much smaller <laughs> than advertised. But besides that, besides that, and they agreed in advance how they would allocate this money, how much Arizona would get, how much Missouri would get, how much Oklahoma would get. Before you know what the impact of COVID-19 is, both on the health services and the economies of these countries, of the country states. And New York State and California, which are donors because they are richer, would have to agree on how much debt to take on on behalf of Missouri, right, before having the data. 
you know what? If the governor of, of California or the, of New York State said, sorry, mate, I'm not agreeing with this, I would not necessarily take shots at them. You know, similarly, when the Dutch prime minister, who is not my cup of tea, and he's not on the same um, side of the political spectrum as I am, you can imagine that, that's an understatement, but nevertheless, I have some sympathy for him when he says, you know, don't talk to me about solidarity. You know, because if, if, you, if the Italians and the Greeks want solidarity from me, okay, I will reach into my pocket, find what money I have, and I'll give it to you. That's what solidarity means. From my savings, I'll give you some money. But solidarity does not impose upon me the moral duty to go into a bank together with you and get out a joint loan. That's not what solidarity asks me to do. So, you know, piss off. Excuse the French. I don't know what it is in Dutch, right? Again, I agree with him. Because the, the issue is not solidarity. The issue is common sense. You see, the beauty of a federal system, of a genuine fiscal union, is that it is automated. That a fiscal stimulus is automated. At least its first stage. So, in 2008, going back to my Nevada versus Ireland example, the governor of Nevada didn't have to negotiate with anyone. What happened is automatically the FDIC, the Fed, took over the failed banks of Nevada, sold some of them, closed some of them, you know, merged others, refloated or bailed out the remainder. The state of Nevada had nothing to do with that. It didn't pay for it. The Nevadans didn't pay for it. It was the Fed that dealt with that. As for the unemployment benefits and you know, Medicare and Social Security, those were paid automatically huh, by Californians or New Yorkers but without any political haggling of who gets what and who borrows in order to lend to somebody else. Because if you had that process of political haggling in the United States, I can tell you, the United States would enter a new civil war that would have made the 1860s version look like uh, you know, a walk in the, in the garden. So you will excuse me, I'm not going to celebrate these kinds of ridiculous agreements by the EU, especially when they not, don't discuss the elephant in the room, which is what? You know, they, they, okay, they've agreed to share 310 measly billions, 0.65% of GDP, nothing. You know, it's not even worth talking about it from a macroeconomic point of view. But while we've been having these discussions about an insignificant amount that is going to be delivered by means of a formula that effectively divides the continent, they're not talking about the real threat. You know, we have a tsunami coming our way and everybody's ignoring it. That's the, the, the tsunami in the room or the elephant in the room. And that's austerity. Because, you know, next year, the Greek government, the Italian government, the Spanish government will have to balance their budgets. Because like in the United States, where the states must balance their budgets, we have a similarly stupid rule here. What does this mean? It means, you know, my, my, our government here is going to, and the same in Italy, we're going to have a budget deficit of 15% of GDP. To go from minus 15 to zero, you need austerity of at least 10% at least cuts, pension cuts, wage cuts, you know, reductions in investment in the health service, of 10% of GDP. Now that's going to be like, you know, the, at the time when hopefully in 2021, the Greeks, the Spaniards, the Italians, the, the Germans are, are, going, are going to be raising themselves from this mire of COVID-19-induced recession. And then what will happen? A huge hammer, sledgehammer is going to hit them of austerity coming from the silly fiscal rules. So, no, this is another dereliction of duty by the European Union. My message to my friends in America is stop celebrating Europe as the way forward. It is not. You have a huge mess in the United States, but so do we. 
I'm, uh, I'm being pushed to go to audience questions, but I'm going rogue and asking you one, one more of my own um, on, this, on this subject. You wrote recently, quote, it is against this backdrop of high and rising inequality that the mood of the German public must be understood. In particular, popular resistance to the idea of a Eurozone fiscal union. German workers who are increasingly struggling to make ends meet understandably refuse to endorse the idea of huge amounts of money being constantly channeled to citizens of other countries. This reminds me of the, of the situation in the U.S. where, where wage stagnations, decades of wage stagnations for workers across the board have created this fertile environment for attacks on public sector unions and welfare recipients and, and anyone considered to be free riders or moochers. So my question is, before we move on to audience questions, how can the left confront this by linking up international redistributionist politics in, in the European context to domestic internal redistributionist politics so that workers in one European country aren't pitted against workers in the other? Because that's currently quite the opposite of the way that things are functioning when neoliberalism runs into nationalism. You mentioned kindly uh, the party that I lead in the Greek parliament, Mera 25. What is unique about Mera 25 is it belongs, completely belongs, it's not affiliated to, it belongs to a pan-European movement, which is called DiEM25. DiEM and Mera mean the same thing in Latin and in Greek. And we made a point of this, of starting that movement in Berlin in February of 2016. To signify what? This is not a clash between the North and the South, between the Germans and the Greeks, the Italians and the Dutch. This is a clash between the oligarchy, without frontiers, an oligarchy which are Greek, the Germans, they love each other. They are very solidaristic towards one another, as you know. They are the enemy, and they are the enemy of the Greeks, the Germans, the Dutch workers, you know, the hoi polloi of our different countries. And the point I made in the article in The Guardian that, again, you kindly uh, read out, is that this idea that Germany is going to be borrowing money to be giving to Greece is abhorrent from a left-wing progressive position because I don't want the, oligarch the Greek oligarchy to get a single penny raised by German workers in the international money markets. Why should the Greek oligarchy be given money by German workers? And you know, it's German workers that are going to be uh, taking on their shoulders this extra German debt. It's not going to be the German oligarchy because they have Cayman Islands accounts that they don't pay anything. And that is not a good foundation for solidarity. We want solidarity, yeah, together with our German comrades that belong to the same pan-European transnational movement, DiEM25. We, we have a party in Germany, we have a party in Greece, we have a party in France, and so on. Uh, what we are trying to educate the German workers and the Greek workers and the Dutch workers and the Italian workers is that what really what is of the essence today is to have a fiscal union such that the rich families of the Greeks, the Germans, the Dutch, and so on, subsidize the poor families in every country. Not the rich countries, the poor countries. And I think once you start saying this to people, even people in Germany and Dutch will hear, you know, Greece, you know, they are all lazy gits, you know, um, playing the bouzouki under the sun. Suddenly they realize that you have a point. And it is the only way of building international solidarity. I'm going to move on to, to audience questions. First, there, I have two related questions from Stephen J. Cleese and John Wahaski, and I apologize if I'm butchering the pronunciation of anyone's name. 
what happens when we terminate labor markets, like you called for earlier? What's, what's the alternative? Okay. Well, the only way to terminate labor markets is, if you can imagine, uh, a world in which shares operate like library cards in universities and colleges. So when you enter a college, right, you're given a library card at registration. It gives you rights. You can borrow books. You can act as an ID. You don't buy it, and you certainly can't sell it, and you can't rent it to anyone. So imagine shares operated like library cards. You get hired by a corporation, and you are given one share. That gives you one vote for every decision made by the firm. Uh, it doesn't mean that everybody is equal in terms of pay, because you can design wonderful bonus payment systems where the majority decides an algorithm by which um, some people who, whom the rest of the corporation believe are contributing more to the corporation get much more, much better rewarded than everybody else. There is a basic income for everyone, and on top of that, you can have very large bonuses. And um, you know, when you leave the company, you take that share with you, and you take the capital that has accrued to you, and then you move to another company. Either you create one on your own, could be a simple person company, or you can come together with others, create a new company, everybody chips in their shares, but then everybody has one vote in that com new company. And, um, or you move to another corporation, another corporation hires you. Uh, th that, that is the way to end the share market. The share market and the labor market at once. Because suddenly there's no share market, like there's no library card market, and there's no labor market, because suddenly everybody's a partner in the corporation to which they contribute their labor. Do you view your prescription for the termination of labor markets and share markets as specific to advanced capitalist economies, such as Japan or the U.S., or broadly applicable across the world? I think it's broadly applicable to the, the whole world, but the way that it will be applied will have to cater for different social conventions. By the way, it's, it's not in order to improve capitalism, it's in order to subvert capitalism, not subvert, transcend capitalism, because capitalism is, a, is not defined by markets. Every society in the history of the world had markets. What makes capitalism capitalism is the commodification of labor. The fact that there is a labor market and the fact that there is a capital market. That is what differentiates capitalism from feudalism, from slave ownership, and so on. Uh, and it is what is going to differentiate it from post-capitalism, the world in which I just very, very briefly described, what I've been doing a lot of thinking about this over the last couple of years, uh, what I call post-capitalism. Uh, the world that I am describing doesn't have a labor market in it. Uh, it has labor. It has markets. It doesn't have labor markets. From Mark Forlenza, and this is a spicy one, does modern monetary theory extend the size and life of the bubble, or does it help control the damage caused by its bursting? Well, MMT is, is the theory. It's not a policy, which means that it, it depends on how you use it. It's like an instrument. That if, how you use an instrument is going to determine the result. It is a very useful instrument for the United States. Effectively, what it says is that um, um, money is created. It, it acknowledges that money is created out of thin air, which is fine. Don't panic about it. You know, overcome 
the delusion that money should be a commodity, like gold or stones or salt or, you know, a piece of a string of zeros and ones, as in Bitcoin. It's fine that we conjure up money. Uh, the question is, how do we use the money that we conjure up? Do we use it in order to give it to the bankers, to give it to the corporates, uh, who already have a lot of money stashed away, so that they can buy back their own shares and create a greater inequality and destroy the opportunity of humanity to combat uh, social crisis as well as, as climate change? Do you want to use it this way? This is because, you know, uh, financialized capitalism is very respectful of MMT. They, 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 show, they have no compunction in printing loads of money when it suits the oligarchy. Uh, what MMTers, however, say, like people, you know, my friends, Stephanie Kelton and others, is that in a place like the United States, where um, you have a central bank controlling the production of public money, the dollar, and where debt is denominated in that currency, not in a foreign currency, uh, then you can, you know, you can print as much money as you want in order to create jobs. And you can provide a job guarantee for all Americans. And then there will be no inflation if the, the jobs that you create this way push out goods and services so that the quantity of money goes up, but so does the quantity of goods and services. So the balance between money and goods um, is not disturbed, but you have a lot more goods and a lot more services and a lot more welfare and well-being. So it, it's, it's a theory. A, a, follow, a brief follow-up on that. To, to what extent is MMT's application peculiar to the United States given the unique global position of the dollar? Well, it is pretty um, peculiar to the United States. The exorbitant power of the dollar helps MMT gives you a lot more room for maneuver, as it does today. Uh, but primarily, what makes the difference is what currency is your debt denominated in. So all American debt is denominated in dollars. So there's no way Americans can go bankrupt because you control the currency in which you owe money. So you know, you, there's no reason why you should ever go bankrupt unless you choose to, right? Unless Donald Trump says, oh, I'm not paying off the bonds that the Treasury bills that uh, the Chinese have purchased. But that's a political decision. It's not because you have to. But if you're a Turkey, or Greece for that matter, coming to you know, my neck of the woods here, Greece does not control its currency. We have the euro. The euro is not controlled by the Greek government or by the Greek central bank. It's like a foreign currency. All our debt is in euros. So we, we can't print it. Same with Turkey. Turkey has its own currency, but most of its debt is in euros and dollars. So it doesn't help to pump up the quantity of Turkish lira when your lenders come asking for euros and dollars. The same would apply to Argentina's situation right now. Exactly, exactly the same thing. This is from uh, Music123. Okay, Music123. <laughs> if private property and commodification of land are the root of the debt problem, which is important in the context of U.S. colonialism, by which I think they're referring to settler colonialism in the U.S., how does our relationship to land have to change post-capitalism? That's a very difficult and good question. Here is a very quick um, and you know, dirty answer. How about every county splitting the land between two zones? One is a commercial zone and another is a social zone. You use uh, on a democratic basis, you make decisions about how you're going to utilize the commercial zone in order to create the rents, 
which you then invest to the social zone. The whole land remains public, but the use of land, the tenure, is granted in both the commercial zone uh, to those who can afford it and for free within the social zone. So this is an example of how you get democratized land, because unless we do, we are allowing the worst kind of monopoly, monopoly that even liberals disdained over decades and centuries, uh, to maintain a grip over the distribution of wealth. Here is the last, the last question, which comes from Ian Soroka. And again, apologies to everyone whose name I'm likely butchering. Without power, we cannot institute economic policy. That seems true to me. Can you speak to the immediate historical horizon where our political choices in the US do not reflect the developing struggles in the street? And just to ad lib, to expand on, on this question, where we have, are gonna shortly, ostensibly be seeing presidential debates between Joe Biden and Donald Trump during a period uh, the same year where we've seen the largest mass protests in US history demanding a very different sort of direction for the country. Well, in the same way that uh, the financial sector is decoupled from capitalism, uh, democratic politics, uh, dominant establishment democratic politics, have de decoupled from uh, social movements, from uh, the public's perception of what's going on. The presidential debates that you're going to be facing soon are going to be soul-destroying. Uh, here you have Joe Biden, who has never failed to be on the wrong side of important decisions over the last decades. Um, financialization, war, rejection of Medicare for all. Every single important debate where public opinion has shifted markedly in the United States, Joe Biden has been on the wrong, wrong side of. And he's the only hope against the misanthrope residing in, in, in the White House. Um, one can only despair. But look, Allow me to, to, to look at the, the hegemon from a tiny little colony of the West called Greece. We had a little revolution in 2015 when we won government against uh, the oligarchy. That was snuffed out within five months. And those of us who were absolutely amazed to find on the 5th of July 2015 that the people of Greece gave us a 62% support for the, the radical alternative, and which, of course, were overthrown overnight by the prime minister then, forcing me to resign and others. You know, suddenly we found ourselves from the top of the mountain, again, into the troughs of hell. But, you know, we didn't um, despair. We despaired for a few minutes, a few days, and then we started a new party and started from zero again, because every generation is condemned to fight the same struggle, again and again and again. And in the end, we have to take courage from the fact that it is the struggle that gives us strength and which actually fun, not the capitulation. Well, thank you so much for, for all of that, Yanis. This has been a really great conversation and thank you for, for making time to share your perspective on everything. And thanks so much to everyone who's, who's been watching. Thank you again to Nicole for live captioning this event. Thank you to the Lannan Foundation and Haymarket Books for putting together this live stream and the whole discussion. 
And thank you to everyone who tuned in. And again, Yanis, thank you. Well, thank you very Daniel. much. Thank you. It was, I mean, the last time we met uh, was in, in person. It was, yeah, the result is in a great discussion. This one too. I hope the next time we are again in person with uh, a proper audience. Not that our audience now is not proper, but I can't see them. I can't see you folks. You know, I wish I could. Uh, without this kind of socialization, especially those of us on the left, left bereft. Yanis Varoufakis is an economist and former Greek finance minister. He is currently the head of the Mera 25 parliamentary bloc in the Hellenic parliament. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that capital is money, capital is commodities, by virtue of it being value, it has acquired the occult ability to add value to itself. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio and find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, but what really does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And please do find us on Patreon and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. 